Hello and welcome to Somewhere to Believe in, a new podcast from the people who bring you Greenbelt Festival. I'm Paul and I'm the creative director of Greenbelt Festival. I'm one of your hosts for this podcast. Hello, I'm Catherine and I'm your other host for Somewhere to Believe in and the programme manager at Greenbelt. If you love very small talk and huge ideas, then this podcast is for you. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. It's cooled down a little bit because this week has been, it's been a lot, hasn't it? It's been a scorcher, hasn't it? Hotter than July, I was going to say, but we're in August now, aren't we? It's been really, really hot. Very humid. Very humid. You've been away in your camper van, though, a few times, haven't you? Yeah, I have. My lovely little camper van that has some great quirks. The latest quirk is when you do the window up, it unlocks the door and the door swings open. Wow, is that for extra ventilation? I'm not quite sure what that, that's for. <laughs> it's not helpful because it means you can't lock the door and have a window closed, which is the ideal state for a caravan that's being parked somewhere overnight. The camper van that I've got has similar quirks in terms of what opens and what doesn't open and what shuts and what doesn't shut. But yours blows hot air at you as well, doesn't it? Yeah, as you're driving. So even if you went away on a really miserable, cold, damp weekend, you could sort of kid yourself that it was... Really lovely summer weather when you're in the van. (laughs) Just when you're driving. And of course, I know your van quite well, Paul, because I lived in it for a couple of months. (laughs) You did. In fact, you christened it, you gave it its name, Greta. Greta the van. Which is really weird because that Greta was top of our list. If if Chantelle and I had ever been able to make girls instead of lots and lots of boys, then uh, Greta was top of our list. So it's really nice that you called the van Greta. Ah. out actually that because I was really happy because my mom started listening to my podcast and that, that took me some quite convincing to get her to do that but then I found out that actually what she does is she listens to the first bit with me and you talking she forwards past the speaker and then she listens to us at the end oh no that's like the reverse of Derek's mum so Derek's mum she fast soared through me and you and then gets to the speaker bit the good bit and then just cuts us off at the end I don't know <laughs> we can't win <laughs> We're recording this and there's lots and lots of news in Scotland and now in England about these results coming out. We're hearing all sorts of just weird stuff around that, aren't we? Yeah, it's a lot of pupils are finding that their grades have been downgraded. And we've talked about systems having biases before in a previous podcast. And this system had a bias built into it that kids in disadvantaged areas are more likely to achieve under the grade that their teachers predicted. So that was kind of included in this algorithm that churned out these grades. And so a lot of kids in disadvantaged areas were underachieving from their mock results and what the teachers said that they should be getting. Not only is it really weird for these students to have spent their last few years learning the curriculum and preparing and aiming towards these exams, then that opportunity is taken away from you, which must feel psychologically and emotionally really weird. And then they're getting these results, which are really varying and often don't seem to be matching up with their expectations either of them or their teachers and I think it really highlights like I think we've always had a belief as a country that we have social mobility so that regardless of what situation you're born into that won't affect the life that you can have and I think we both know that that is untrue 
And this has just shone a light on that for me. Yeah, and you think that, you know, we hear a lot about algorithms and about how algorithms sort of rule our lives, whether we're on social media or in all sorts of other spheres. And it seems like another example of algorithms, I don't know, messing, messing with stuff that um, I'm not sure we want them messing with. You know, you live with a story for long enough, you think it's just how things are supposed to be, and you don't realise that you can change it. Yeah, I think that's the sad thing, isn't it? It's that, because I guess a lot of what we've been hearing about in this podcast series is we've been hearing from people and we've been hearing stories about how change is possible and about hope is possible. And, you know, you really need that in life as a human. So our full lineup and our schedule for the Wild at Home Festival is out there. People seem to be liking it. What are you looking forward to, Catherine? Have you got something in particular that you're really looking forward to over that weekend? All of them. Like, the best thing about this year is that I've only had to pick seven or eight artists. So I just went for all the ones that I love, you love, Greenbelt loves. So they're all fantastic. So we've got Hope and Social. And they're just a band I love because they make great music. They make great feel-good music. And they're just great people. They do, like, these great community projects, which is bringing people together to all play in a band or to sing or... They're just, like, wonderful. Ron Artist the second, who is an artist that I discovered this year because I booked him for the festival that we couldn't put on. His voice, his voice is just incredible. So I'm really looking forward to people being able to hear that. Yeah, all of them. I, don't, I can't really single them out, Paul. It's just going to be brilliant. But it's quite good, isn't it? You know, this digital space has enabled us to bring in artists from all over the place. Like Ron Artist is going to be coming into us from Hawaii Chris Matthews from the Southern States of America. I mean, you know, we do always bring artists from overseas, but, you know, we haven't had to fly anyone this time, so there's, you know, no climate damage. That that feels good. It do, That does feel good. Scheduling has been a nightmare, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are they going to be up by then? Hold on. Oh, so, but no, so-and-so is going to be in... Oh, they're ahead. Oh, yeah. Do you mind performing <laughs> at nine o'clock in the morning, your time? <laughs> I've been trying to read the news a little bit. No, I've been trying to get, let people tell me about the news more because I started to follow the story of what's happening in Belarus. Yeah, you see, that's where it's weird, you see. You're slightly having a downer on yourself for not reading the news. But I'm at the same time, I'm only paying attention to Belarus because you've brought us into contact over the last few years at the festival with Pussy Riot and then the Belarus Free Theatre Company and their Balaclava Blues production. So it's because of what you've programmed and brought to my attention that I have then paid attention to the news, if you see what I mean. So yeah, the Belarus stuff that's kicking off at the moment is really interesting. It's really interesting, and I think it's a country to look at because, you know, it's it's kind of widely known as the last dictatorship in Europe, and I think that it's good to see countries like that because it shows us where we don't want to be. You know, at the moment you have young people taking to the streets, fighting for democracy, fighting with their lives for democracy, and it's not a fair fight. You know, the police over there... Uh, terribly brutal they are just open firing on protesters with actual bullets they are just taking protesters off the street and detaining them and not telling their family where they are they're beating them a lot of times most times they're putting them on 
TV shows and kind of ridiculing them. It, you know, it's horrific. And all these young people are fighting for is democracy. And it's something that we just don't even really have to think about. No, and, and yet it's, it's, so cr- it's so close to, to where we are, relatively speaking. You know, it's, it's not that far away. And, and like you say, it's a, it's a bit of a wake-up call. We know that whilst it might not have been the performers who've been at the festival, we know that members of Belarus Free Theatre Company and also of Pussy Riot have been caught up in these protests and um, the people taking to the streets as well. So the artistry and the people that we bring you to the festival these are people who really do put themselves on the line and they're making work that is challenging the power and the status quo in their countries and it's um you know we're really keen to try and support their bravery and put a spotlight on what they're doing because those people you know you've just mentioned from pussy right and belarus free theater they've gone missing and they're currently missing uh, as of recording this podcast so you know, definitely our audience who have got to know these people, but anybody else listening, we just need to pay attention. And it's such a small thing that we can do is just pay attention, just put the pressure on, share this story, because it's not a story that a lot of people know. And it's not a story that gets widely shared about. It doesn't seem to be at the headlines of any of our newspapers. One thing I think that Catherine and I feel really privilege to be able to do at Greenbelt is to be able to connect the festival to stuff that's going on around the world as far as we're able and most Greenbelters will know that we've had a really really long standing a decades-long concern for Palestine and Palestinians and again that's very much in the news at the moment you know there was talk of Israel annexing uh, huge parts of the West Bank earlier in the summer and then suddenly just as Catherine and I are recording this conversation, news comes out that Israel have suddenly signed a deal with the United Arab Emirates. And it's something that America have overseen and brokered. But it's something that completely leaves the Palestinians out of any of the discussions of what's going on, doesn't keep them informed, keeps them away from the table. And um, yeah, again, it's just it's mind boggling. And you know, we've both been over to Palestine. And when I when I joined the organisation, I knew very little about the history and about the situation over there, because it's kind of complicated. And it's not talked about a lot. And so lots of people don't really know. But I do think that the media and our own human nature tends to overcomplicate it when really, at the end of the day, it's about people having equal human rights. We're, we're going to have a panel conversation between Palestinians living in the West Bank as part of our Greenbelt Wild at Home Digital Day. So hopefully that will help us understand what it feels and looks like for Palestinians on the ground. It's difficult as well, isn't it? Because you get into being accused of anti-Semitism as soon as you start talking about these issues. And that's another reason, as well as the complexity, there's the the worry about being perceived as being anti-Semitic. That also keeps people quiet and keeps people away from these issues which is a a real shame. Yeah, and for me, maybe there's a difference between being critical of Israel and being critical of the Israeli government because my critique would definitely be of the Israeli government. Perhaps we just ought to cut to the chase and welcome our guest for this week, who is Amelia Womack, who's the deputy leader of the Green Party. So anyway, we had a great conversation with her and let's listen into it now. 
So, Amelia, thank you so much for joining us. Where, where are we talking to you today? So I'm in Newport in South Wales, which has been really interesting to see the different impacts of coronavirus across the country and see how people react. But I feel like we've been quite cocooned in a, a different way here in Wales. I lived in Newport, Wales for, for a few months once. Oh, brilliant. Lovely. In South Wales. Yeah, yeah. Right near Amazing. to Cardiff. Yeah. Lovely place. It's. Uh, I feel like it's got such a rich history that people don't understand and appreciate. And I think uh, most people I speak to say that they've drove, driven through it or gone through it on the train uh, and never stopped off. But there's a lot here. I don't think people should really appreciate that. Amelia, when I was when I was knew that I was going to interview you, I started to do a little bit of research and I saw an interview that you did with Piers Morgan not that long ago and I couldn't <laughs> watch it. I watched it for about a minute and then uh, I couldn't watch any more. Um, how was that for you? It was an interesting experience. That's I think it was the first Good Morning Britain <laughs> after Christmas. I feel like he'd come back with uh, more energy than he normally does. I thought it was interesting because I was talking about something. I was talking about basically basically kind of carbon taxes and things like that, but specifically around meat. And I knew it would get him angry. But what I found really interesting was on social media, everyone was so incredibly supportive of me because they were just like, we just wanted to hear what she was going to say. <laughs> Why did you keep just shouting over her? We actually were quite interested in her point of view. And uh, I got very little negative feedback on social media. It was mostly just people like, can you just tell me what you what you were going on the TV to actually talk about? Because I did didn't get a chance to hear that at all. No, he didn't let you speak. And actually, what you were talking about was um, attacks on meat, weren't you? About trying yes. to reduce our consumption around meat, because that's one of the um, worst factors in affecting our environment at the moment. Absolutely, and I think um, I th it was really important as well because we're talking. I was wanted to talk about it from a health perspective as well as the environmental perspective, and um, I think it's. Uh, Really, people are talking about how we reduce our meat consumption. It's a, a really important topic, I think, to be talking about. So it was a, a shame not to be able to talk to Piers about it properly while he was talking to me about almonds, which wasn't the most helpful thing in the world. <laughs> so, Amelia, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your journey. You know, when we read about you and we watch you and most commentary on you is, oh, you know, um, Amelia's so young to be involved in politics and, you know, why green politics? Why the Green Party? I'm just wondering, can you give us some of the the, uh, the landmarks that have got you to, to where you are today? I feel like an accidental politician. It certainly wasn't a kind of a career ambition. And I think that that's something that I see a lot in the Green Party, actually, uh, especially compared to other parties, that people really believe in making a difference. And it's not about uh, becoming an MP or necessarily becoming a councillor. It's about how you make a difference. Obviously, when we do get those roles, we make an incredible impact. But for me, I feel like you know, growing up surrounded by the, the narrative of David Attenborough that really gives you an appreciation of the world around us. I'd always been really interested in the environment. And actually, uh, my mum and dad worked against, uh, ran a, a campaign against a bypass here in Newport. It did make me really understand the impacts of our actions on, on the wildlife, the local habitats. And for me, what I really cared about was the local badges. I was about eight. I got a, a letter back from the uh, secretary state for Wales uh, because of my letter about about the badges that I was really concerned about. 
I went on to study environmental biology and just really wanted to work in in the environment and making a, a genuine difference to tackle the climate emergency. I was so astounded that I think when I was reading about the impacts of climate change and people are talking about fires in the Arctic and the coral reefs bleaching and glaciers disappearing. I never thought that we'd get to a point where it became almost a, like a, a, well, it's become such a reality. I never thought that we'd get to that point. I felt that people would take action. And I really feel that one of the things I've been most proud of of being in the Green Party is realising we're the ones that have to take action and make the political will uh, possible uh, because at the moment the status quo is what's prevailing. So I, I joined the Green Party back in uh, 2007, just after I graduated from environmental biology and uh, have just done everything I can to make sure that we have a, a clear voice about what the future should look like. And I felt really quite passionate about the fact that I've got frustrated at politici politicians when they talked about an apolitical generation. And it felt like we were fast becoming an apolitical population if kind of every age demographic is not engaging in politics because it doesn't speak to them or for them. And so I got uh, really involved in youth engagement in politics, supporting young councillors and young people to stand in political roles. And essentially, the young Greens told me to put my money where my mouth was and run for deputy leader. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd, I thought I'd win. I just wanted to make sure that youth engagement and politics and listening to a whole generation was heard. I like the fact that you said that you're not, you didn't get into politics to be a politician, which I think is the best way to get into politics. Um, do you think that... Uh, change can be made in politics still. Yes, absolutely. I do see myself as a campaigner and I think uh, it's really important that we speak about issues and win campaigns. But the only way that we're going to make the real change, not just for our generation, but for generations to come, is to ensure that there's long-term policy in place that makes that change possible. I think that we've seen many governments fail in different ways that mean that we're you know, trying to campaign for things that could should may maybe just be the way. And uh, if we had the right politicians that spoke for our values, that would mean that we'd have essentially those policies in place that would create institutionalised change in both our councils and parliaments and assemblies across the country. And I think it's really powerful. I think that people don't realise how much change is actually made by people engaging. I mean, we always talk about different campaigning activities, whether that's from the, the chartists or the suffragettes. And change happens because people speak out, and it's but it's the politicians who end up making that law and making it kind of a, a real reality for how we operate in our day-to-day -day lives. So yeah, I think that politics really does change things. And I think I'm often asked, you know, what, 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 where does change happen? Is it the people? Is it business? Is it politics? I think you should also talk about the media and, and press uh, and finance as well. And I think that in many ways, at the moment, business and people are going far further than the politicians are when it comes to the environment, quite specifically in sustainability. Uh, it's the politicians who now need to listen because they're the ones that create the fr framework in which we all operate. One thing that strikes me is you were saying that, you know, people go into the Green Party because they really want to, to make a difference, not necessarily because they want to become a, a, a big name in politics. Um, and yet, I think, uh, you know, the polling shows us that people in this country still vote for a, a leader or a well-known name or someone who stands out. And do you think that's an issue for the Green Party? I think that we 
you know, we still have leadership qualities and we still show what a difference Greens can make. I think that we've seen a really real seismic shift around the world at the moment where different things are being valued. Things like we've seen young women being able to to change the the entire outlook of politics um, from Finland to New Zealand, just showing why diversity in voice is important, but also why things like empathy and compassion are also important. And I think that as people, although, although we're a party of people who genuinely want to make change happen, we are still leaders but I think when we're not afraid to speak out, you just see the difference that Caroline Lucas makes in Parliament, holding the government and the opposition to account. I think that you, you know what you're going to get with a Green far better than some of the other parties. So I actually think that as Greens, we are far more predictable and far more dedicated to a shared vision than other parties. I think with the first past the post system, we've become really entrenched to that idea of we need Her Majesty's government and Her Majesty's opposition rather than making sure sure that we have every single vote counted and a variety of voices that represent the broad uh, range of understanding and priorities that we have across the country. One of the talks that I saw you do was at the Oxford Union where you were talking and kind of calling to arms people to be rebellious in to uh, help save our climate. And you also noted people like the Nanas who we've had at the festival before um, as being like an inspiration to you, those people that do take it to the streets and they are causing that change. Um, do you think there's ever a time when uh, you might cut out of politics because you see maybe more chance of being able to make that change on the street. I think that the two things go hand in hand. And I think that people look at politics and they think it's just, you know, casting a vote every few years. Obviously, we've been doing it more frequently than we've been expecting. A lot more frequently, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much more to politics. The whole point of democracy is that we all have power and the power of lobbying, petitioning and protesting is all part of that. And I think that we have a need to have a real appreciation that politics isn't just what happens in Westminster. It's about us all having a voice, all having power and making sure that we're being heard. The work that the Nanas have done to to stop fracking up in in Lancashire has been so inspiring because their motivations are essentially that they've got grandchildren and they want to make sure that climate change doesn't ruin their futures and being able to talk from that perspective, but also engage with people. I mean, everybody uh, can relate to a Nana and uh, that kind of role of protection that they that, that they kind of embody and that's who they are they want to be those earth protectors for generation for a generation that doesn't necessarily always have a voice and I think uh, what they do is know their power and use it so effectively and I think we can all learn from that. Another person who we had with us at the festival last year was Mike Berners-Lee who's written this book called No Planet B and he spoke in a venue that we had called The Hot House, which was dedicated to uh, engaging with climate change issues across the whole weekend. And we thought it might be quite useful just to listen to the, just the, a very short opening from his talk from last year, um, where he sets out this idea that climate change isn't a little discrete, set aside little aspect of things, uh, something that we need to think about in amongst everything else, but that it re- it's something that's inextricably linked to everything that, that uh, we're involved in and you've used the word values quite a few times as being really important in your green party politics and in your motivations and it's something that mike comes back to as well this idea of 
unless we're going to get some sort of value shift and values alignment, it, we're going to struggle to make a difference. So perhaps we could just take uh, five, six minutes and listen to that and then come back to our conversation, if that's OK. Brilliant. Thank you. So, OK, so I'm going to talk mainly for my, my book, There's No Planet B. And uh, why... Just the background to that book. So I've been working around sort of climate change pretty well full time for about 15 years or so. And uh, it's pretty clear if you really want to deal with climate change, it's pretty clear that you have to see climate change uh, as one symptom of something much bigger that's going on. Um, and if we found just a, a sort of a climate change shaped sticky plaster uh, to go over the climate change problem, it wouldn't be long before uh, humans found themselves up against um a whole load of uh you know a whole load of other <laughs> other other problems <laughs> maybe this one <clears throat> can you hear me all right by the way yeah okay good uh so so what is that bigger thing that's going on and some people call it, have this big word for it they call it the anthropocene and i'm just going to use that word to describe to describe a, a uh, a massive change in context for in which we're now humans have to operate now so one way of looking at it is that uh, we've been, for a long time now, year after year, humanity has been getting more energy at its disposal. We've been increasing our energy supply. It's been going on for thousands of years, but uh, the rate at which we're increasing our, our, our energy supply has been going up, has been, has been increasing as well. So for the last 50 years, it's been going up by 2.4% a year, which means that's a factor of 10 every century. For the 100 years before that, it was only going up at about 1% per year and before that at a slower rate. But we've been getting more and more energy. And we use that energy to do all kinds of great things. We use it to travel. We use it to keep warm. We use it to make things. We use it to dig things out of the ground. And we're getting ever more efficient in our use of that energy and ever more inventive in all the things that we can do with it. So we're using it to, uh, we, you know, with, there's ever more chemicals and bombs that we know how to make and all, all this kind of stuff. And one way and another, it, our energy supply and, and our inventiveness with it uh, brings all sorts of great things to our lives, arguably. Um, and I'd be dead without some of the technology that we've got. But, um, but through a mixture of accident and design, we increasingly influence the planet that we're living on. And um, that didn't matter, you know, in a way. A long time ago, because we were still a small species on a big, robust planet, and we could get away with treating the world in that way. And until very recently, that was the case. So a hundred years ago, we couldn't smash the whole world up, even if we tried, and we did try pretty hard around that time, and we didn't, you know, we didn't succeed. Some, somewhere around fifty years ago, we got to the point where, with a shock, we kind of realised, oh my goodness, you know, we could smash the whole place up if we really did something stupid. But we've got three times more energy at our disposal than we had 50 years ago, and we've invented a lot more things to do with it. And now we're in a completely different context. We're in a context, we're in a situation in which we don't have to be particularly, we don't have to be particularly reckless to smash the place up. We are doing, and we will smash the place up unless we are really careful not to. And that's a, that's a radically different context for humanity to be operating in. So we can't, we can no longer get away with treating the world as if we're a small species running around on a big, robust playground. Suddenly we're in this kind of China shop and, you know, and our energy supply is going up and up and up and we're getting increasingly powerful and we're going to need to be ever more careful about it. And, um, 
So here we are in this Anthropocene. It's a totally different context for humanity to be operating in. And yet everything about how we do life and how we run society, how we do our, how we do our politics, how we do our decision making, how we solve our problems, how we run society, how we think, everything has been honed over millennia in a totally different context. So now we've got to urgently ask ourselves how much of how we do life is still fit for purpose. And the bits that aren't, we've got to identify them quickly, urgently, and uh, even more challenging still, um, we've, got to, uh, we've got to change them. And so here in this Anthropocene, what we're faced with is suddenly a whole range of interconnected, globally systemic challenges. Um, so we can't look at climate change over here on its own and then turn our, our attention to biodiversity separately, um, which, by the way, is just as serious as climate change, and then have a look at the food system and ask ourselves how we're going to feed everybody, you know, and then have a look at economics and then have a look at inequality and so on. You know, if we do these things one at a time, it just, it just doesn't work out. It, do, it just doesn't stack up. What we find we actually have to do is we have to have a look at the whole lot all in one go. Um, like it or not. And it doesn't matter how complex you think that is to do, that's what needs to be done. And it's not just the science and the technology and the sort of practical stuff we have to look at. Actually, it turns, um, because it turns out, and here's the good news, that is, if you want a one-line piece of good news from, uh, from There's No Planet B, it turns out that from a technical and scientific point of view, uh, all these problems are happily very solvable. You know, there is no reason why we can't live better than ever before uh, the only thing that's stopping us is is ourselves. We just need to kind of, uh, you know, get our heads around how to how to do it. So the real question, the nub of the question is, well, you know, what is stopping us? What do we have to do? What's what has to change about the economics? What has, what what is it about our values that we need? Um, what is it about uh, you know our politics? What is it about our economics? But all these things are inescapably uh, connected into it, and and possibly the crunch point of the whole book, really. Uh, and it's amazing how many. Over the course of writing it, I sat down and talked to a lot of technical experts from all sorts of different fields, and it's amazing how many people would say to me at the end of a uh, sort of at the end of a long cup of coffee would say words to the effect of, "Well, you know what? If we really want to sort all this out, perhaps it all boils down to a values debate. Perhaps it's all about if we've got these values, then it'll all work out fine. And if we can't, if we can't find a way of having these values like you know similar to these." this set over here, then we're going to be in trouble whatever we do. And I think that's, that's exactly where, where I came to as well. So we'll kind of, uh, we'll, we'll kind of get onto that. So I think Mike's question that he asks there is, what's stopping us? And from, from your experience, Amelia, in your life and your work, what, what do you think it is that is stopping us? What, what are the barriers to us making the changes that we need to make? It's important to look at the values base. And I think that here in Wales, one of the values bases that I think is really powerful is we have something called a Future Generations Act. That means that every single decision that is made isn't just about our generation, but what it, how it impacts generations to come. And making sure that we are making decisions right now that isn't just about the moment, but about how we protect, preserve and build something better, essentially, as a result of really reflecting on our impacts on the world. So the barriers to why that happens in many ways, I, I mentioned those different areas of, you know, what comes first, people, politics, business, uh, finance or the, or the media. I think that there hasn't been enough understanding of the climate and e ecological emergency. 
I think that there are many barriers of, of how politics works at the moment, which is almost a kind of talking about GDP for the sake of GDP. And I appreciate that right now in the middle of coronavirus, well, people are losing work and there's so many changes in our society. We're talking about how that's negatively impacting our, our GDP. But I think when we're looking about what needs to come next, we know that only 6% of people want to go back to what we had before. People keep talking about going back to normal. And I think people are essentially reflecting on, you know, what the hell was normal about it? What was normal about homelessness? What was normal about child poverty? What was normal about not addressing a climate emergency that scientists have been telling us for decades is on the horizon? And I think this is what's going to remove many of the barriers is is that people have, uh, just these last few months, I've been talking to people and people are thinking about these bigger issues in in a far different way than I've seen before because people are really reflecting on what's important. The status quo didn't help us. Increasing our our GDP for the uh, growth for the sake of growth doesn't help everybody. And what it's gone on to do is to essentially destroy our environment, undermine workers' rights and effectively made a weaker economy as a result of the externalities that that's created. I mean, that all seems to make a lot of sense to me. And, you know, we've got a government in power at the moment that last year declared a climate emergency and then doesn't seem to have reacted to it like an emergency at all. And especially, I think that with the pandemic, there was maybe opportunities to really look at the businesses that we want to bailout that we want to give money to? Are they treating their staff well? What are their green policies like? But it doesn't seem like anything's really happening with our current government. I think that's true. And I think that there's a, we keep hearing people talking about building back better. And our current government have used that narrative and have started to talk about it without really having a vision of what better looks like. You know, it's been so inspiring to see especially young people and the youth strike coming out and, and genuinely challenging uh, government and challenging what they're saying. And I think the uh, obviously with things like the school strikes as well as Extinction Rebellion, that's how uh, the climate emergency was put in place. It was actually a Green councillor in Bristol that declared the very first climate emergency in Europe. You know, it really did send waves across the Welsh Parliament, the Scottish Parliament councils, as well as um, our Parliament as well. Making sure that we have the right policies for the environment and people is essentially managing risk. Right now, our government is failing to manage that risk. And when you look at the risk management plans that have previously been produced, it's normally about reducing the impacts of climate change, of talking about the impacts of floods and trying to create an emergency response rather than working to ensure that we reduce the number of floods that might happen as a result of deforestation, habitat, uh, landscape changes, as well as climate change. And you mentioned there, Amelia, about the the Green Party uh, councillor in Bristol, who was the first to instigate that declaration of climate emergency. I wonder, we've been talking to various guests in this podcast series, and something that seems to be coming through as a bit of a theme for us is, might change come through cities uh, rather than countries. We, Catherine and I are really interested that uh, Amsterdam uh, have adopted Kate Rayworth's donor economics as the way that they are going to build back better out of this pandemic, which obviously is a radically different economic model than the one that we're working with now, one that accords uh, a good, um, a holistic sort of understanding to the environment at its heart. I just wondered, you know, obviously you're working 
in party politics and in national policy uh, politics. But do you think that cities actually might be the way forward for us in terms of modelling ways out of this? I think not just cities, but local communities as well. And I think I've always believed in the power of the local and what we can do at a more local level. I think that we're able to discuss and transform so many elements of how our our cityscapes, our our town, the ways our towns operate, or or even on a kind of smaller basis, our our villages and rural landscapes work by actually understanding the what what people want on that local level. It's always inspiring to see those individuals and campaigners that really use an identity of where they live to make sure that they are able to funnel energy into clear goals and opportunities for their local communities, whether that's the, talking about climate emergencies, whether that's the role of Black Lives Matter at the moment that has been highlighting local history as well as the needs of local issues that people have exposed uh, racist structures within. Or even when I think about one of the, the local villages up the road, it's uh, apparently the most high-tech village in the UK because they actually worked as uh, a community to get high-speed uh, broadband to their village first by digging their own ditches and getting it put in place because they thought that that's that's what they want that's what they wanted as a priority change has happened on a local level in so many different ways because people have a vision of what they want and amelia um I don't think I could have you here without talking about Brexit, because that's obviously the thing that we're going to have to be looking at and dealing with. What do we have to look out for as new trade deals are being made? So I think my biggest fear is not having a clear trade deal with Europe. Europe has had really ambitious uh, policies when it comes to human rights, workers' rights, environmental protection and peace. And I think it is what we've created as a result of that is trade that is a lot healthier for people as well as the environment. As a scientist, I always think it's interesting the way people use the word science to justify what they, how they work and operate. And it's interesting because in Europe, our science is underpinned by the precautionary principle, which essentially says that something isn't good. Let's take chemicals as an example. You can't use chemicals until you prove that it's not dangerous. America says that it's got science that underpins its policy, which compared to Europe, where there are hundreds of banned chemicals. I think it's just 13 abandon America because they say that you can use a chemical until it's proven that it is dangerous. And that kind of framework in which policy is creating means that we are talking about chlorinated chicken. We're talking about different uh, chemicals that could come to the UK, as well as those concerns about the, the competition laws that mean that we might have to privatise things like the NHS. If we get a trade deal with America before we get a trade deal with the EU, it could potentially bring all of those problems to the UK like we've never seen before. I appreciate that the EU wasn't perfect. I think uh, there are many ways in which it can be improved, but that's an ongoing cycle and journey for the future of Europe. But what it has done is really challenged us in the UK to improve so many aspects of our environment. But if we get a US trade deal, then I just see that reduction in standards as being something that we really, on an individual level, don't understand the impact of, because what underpins science in America aren't the basic philosophy 
philosophies that I think has people or planet at the heart of it. When we were talking to the philosopher Roman Krasnerich earlier on on our podcast series, he said that a valuing as the earth as sacred lies at the heart of all the movements that care about climate change and climate emergency and who are fighting for a more environmentally sustainable future for us all. I wondered, could you comment on that? Is there a spirituality that that goes hand in hand with or motivates or informs some of your thinking and politics? It was a result of coronavirus. A lot of people have felt that connection with nature in an incredibly different way, whether that's looking at bees in their garden or being able to get out onto their local footpaths and kind of appreciate the well-being that nature brings to us all. And I think that there are aspects of us understanding how we connect with nature um, and our, our environment to as, as part of who we are and our identity. But beyond that as well, I think uh, green politics is about people and making sure that we are connecting to people, supporting people. I work in the events industry and the music industry as well. And they're two industries that, although it's kind of changing, they're still very male dominated. And for me, I see politics as, as even more male dominated. And that's even at a time when we have female political leaders all over the world really doing very well and especially coming out of this pandemic they were some of the um, leaders that were doing the best how, how do you do you think that politics is still a very male dominated environment and how is that for you working in that it's really interesting and I could talk about this all day because um, especially being 29 when I first started, I can't be- uh, well, when I was first deputy leader at least, I can't begin to tell you the amount of times that I've gone to events and people have asked whose assistant I am and uh, it frustrates me that people don't see people who look like me as people who, sh- who should have a voice in these political platforms and uh, usually those comments are followed up with uh, oh but you don't look like a politician And I feel like, you know, what does a politician look like? We should be making sure that politics represents the broad kind of diversity of our country. And that includes age, gender, ethnicity, sexuality. I mean, the list goes on. And I think, uh, you know, making sure that that's represented in politics is so vital and important and what makes our politics stronger as well. I often think back to an interview I had with Jon Snow. It was about young people in politics and it was the last question of the show to an audience of people under the age of 21. And the last question was, uh, why aren't there more women and young people in politics? I was the only woman on the panel and I was the youngest person by at least 10 years. And they went to uh, Hillary Benn for Labour and then they went to the Conservatives. Then they went to the Lib Dems and then they went to UKIP. And uh, then Jon Snow said, uh, that's all we've got time for tonight. And I really felt that's exactly why we don't have more women and young people in politics, because the voices of those people are so often shut down. And uh, that was 2015. And I think that if that happened, Happen now, there would have been a far more vocal surge of support for what happened there that would have exposed why that wasn't, first of all, addressing the question and appreciating uh, how you support people who are representing diversity. Uh, and I think that, you know, probably even in that case, I probably would have been come, come to first because I think that the media is actually kind of understanding and supporting diversity in a different way. And so the whole system really needs to be shaken up to ensure that people feel 
feel genuinely represented by politics and politicians uh, from all kinds of different uh, kind of intersectional aspects of how of diversity and it's really feels like there's a seismic shift in people's understanding of why diversity makes us stronger what keeps you going amelia because it sounds like it's a real battle and it's a long long road what keeps you you know what keeps you each day going and and are you hopeful are you hopeful or how do you feel about the future well, I think it's uh, hope is actually what keeps me going. And I think it's what keeps everybody going as well. And I think that being inspired by the work that individuals do, whether that's uh, young campaigners working on period poverty, or whether that's bigger movements that are engaging and energising people in new ways. I feel like there are more people than ever before saying enough is enough, especially when it comes to uh, in environmental destruction in the climate emergency. And uh, people are really willing to speak out. And I think that it's all of our jobs to remember that's our power as I said before, politics is about petitioning, lobbying, campaigning, as well as voting. I think we all need to understand our own power and make sure that we're engaging as many people as possible to remember their power as well. I feel like we are a majority of people who want to build a better future. It's just that we need to make sure that we're heard. Uh, Amelia, thank you so much for your time and being so generous with us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And do keep in touch. I hope we will see each other in a field at some point in the future. <laughs> So that was great to have some time with Amelia. Uh, she's our seventh guest on this summer series of the podcast. Um, did you enjoy that conversation, Catherine? Yeah, she's great, isn't she? She's very knowledgeable, very clear. You like that bit where I think she described herself as an accidental politician. Yeah, because I think that's how you get into politics, because she went and studied biology and the environment and she's knowledgeable. And then she, you know, goes into that area and then becomes a politician fighting for change. Whereas a lot of times what you get is people in politics that can be one day, you know, secretary for education and the next day secretary of defense. And you just put them anywhere because they're just a politician rather than somebody that's really knowledgeable in a specific area. Still, I, th I think the British public, we vote for leaders. We do vote for names that we sort of recognize. And I just think it's a bit of a problem when we probably can't even name the co-leaders of the Green Party. I can see what you're saying. I think re really that should be a bonus because you're voting for a party rather than you're voting for a person. And that seems to make more sense. And actually voting for a person is what's got the world in various different countries into a lot of problems. In our current political system where it's, you know, the first past the post system, it seems difficult to imagine how the Green Party will get a foothold where great people like Amelia and others in the party, like Sean Barry and Jonathan Bartley, the co-leaders. It seems difficult to imagine how they might break through into sort of higher positions of office and influence. Maybe they need to go on Celebrity Apprentice. <laughs> that is the answer. She talks about our values as a country. What are our values? And from 
the way that you see our country behaving and acting, what do you think our values are? I think that our values seem to be to a lot to do with how can you prop up and keep the economy going and as strong as possible so that businesses and corporations can make the money that they need to to keep everyone happy. Profit over people. Profit over people. Yeah. And where that really terrifies me is, you know, I think Mealy brought it up in the podcast where she talks about possible trade deals with America and how Europe has very stringent rules around chemicals and things that can be used, which are normally in favour of people over profits. America's kind of skewed. So in England, a chemical can only be used if it's proven to be safe, whereas in America, a chemical can be used until it's proven to be unsafe and there's a couple of things that i i studied a little bit in america and i remember um bringing back a, a hat and it said on it that this hat um the dye in this hat may cause cancer and i thought i've never seen that in in england but it's just a hat why would i buy a hat if it might cause me cancer i just buy a different hat and you have got quite a lot of hats haven't you Catherine? i do like hats <laughs> so it's something you do have to think about yeah, I found that really amazing. I hadn't quite, you know, I've heard a lot of talk about chlorinated chicken, things like that. That's the way that the media headline. That's the buzzword, isn't it? Yeah, that's the way it's filtered through to me. But I found it really helpful to understand there's that different sort of culture and approach to science and risk that happens in America than in Europe. I thought, you know, we're, we're told that uh, belonging to Europe sort of is all about bureaucracy and holding us back and red tape. But I'd rather have that red tape if it's um, about keeping us safe. You know, that, that term red tape is used so much. That red tape is all linked to our human rights and is all linked to protections for our health. And it's something that Europe's very good at. And it's something that America is terrible at. Those rights and those protections that you talk about really do relate to Amelia's whole work with the Green Party as well and the environment because that really does worry me is once we come out of Europe, will we be as proactively looking to safeguard the sustainability of the environment? Because without that, even if you keep putting profit first and even if you keep wanting businesses to just keep making more and more money, if our environment isn't working, then none of that works. The thing is, I think that we have a little bit of power with that because we're the, we're the consumers in that. We're the people with the money. And we can see how decisions that we make as consumers can actually start to change policy. And, and Amelia talks about it a little bit. If we start to only buy clothing that is sustainably sourced, companies will then start to sell clothing that is the same because we're buying it and we wouldn't buy any of the fast fashion rubbish that's harming our planet. I guess the problem with that, though, Paul, is that normally bad stuff is cheap. That is the big problem. I think that you sometimes have, there's some people that have the luxury of being able to make choices with their money. And then there's other people that don't have that luxury. And as our economy and as our society grows ever more unequal, then I guess that does strip those rights out of our hands. We don't get to choose. <laughs> Thank you. 
I think you've mentioned before in podcast episodes, Catherine, that even in our dealings in the office when we're making a festival, people will talk to and email you differently than they will me. You as a woman, me as a man. And, you know, that came through strongly with Amelia as well. Her journey into politics hasn't been easy, oftentimes because of her gender. Incredible, isn't it? That it's still happening. I mean, that Piers Morgan interview that you couldn't get into, I mean... God, that was awful. Did that, how does that make you feel when you watch that? Let alone, I mean, what it must have felt like for Amelia, who knows? But what did it feel like to you watching that? I couldn't watch it. I couldn't watch it. I mean, I, I don't know whether it's just because she's a woman, because I think it's just Pierce Morgan in general. But I've just seen that so many times where you have a certain demographic of man and you have a woman and the man is just not listening to anything she's trying to say and is talking over her, belittling her. And that story she told about the end of being on a panel on Channel 4 News and, you know, the question at the end was exactly for her, you know, how do we get young people, how do we get women into politics? And (laughs) they didn't even come to her on the question. No, it's funny, but it's not funny, is it? It's like, it's funny and not funny because it's so true. It happens such a lot. I think what's positive is she said that that was, that was in 2015 and she doesn't think that it would have been allowed to happen now. And I kind of agree. I think that, I think that we're more aware of that stuff now. It's not, it's not, it's not 100% right, but I think people are more aware and more accountable. So Amelia's definitely chosen the, the political route for her, her wanting to make change. But at the festival, she's going to be on a climate change panel for us. And she'll be alongside Skeena Rathor, who is a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. And you asked her in the conversation, you know, what do you think taking it to the streets um, rather than just working politically? How did you feel she answered that? Did, did you think that, um, you know, how do you feel about that, Catherine? Yeah, I think she answered it really well. And a lot of my favourite activists, they say you need a bit of everything. You need people to take it to the streets and you need people to influence policy. I like the fact that she actually references that growing up watching David Attenborough documentaries actually made a difference to the way that she thought and saw the world. I thought that was really encouraging, positive. It makes you fall in love with the world. When you fall in love with something, you're going to take care of it. Wow, put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> and that's, I guess that's what we try and do at the festival, you know. We try and... I always think that the best, like, artists, the good artists and musicians and poets, they kind of make you fall in love with your human race again. They make you fall in love with yourself and they make you fall in love with each other. It kind of is something that that speaks directly to your soul. And I think that that happens with the David Attenborough documentaries. There's something about them that just awakens something within you and makes you feel connected to that. Because I don't know about you, but, you know, I live on a housing estate. I don't have a lot of green around me. I've got a lot of roads around me. There's a lot of concrete. I live in the black country, so it's very industrial, very concrete. And it's hard to fall in love with your surroundings. And so it's hard to know what you're fighting for. So anyway, look, we were talking to Amelia there. It was fantastic to have our guest. You can hear more from her on the festival weekend itself when she'll be part of our climate change panel. Really looking forward to that. As part of talking with her, we played in a a little excerpt from a talk that Mike Berners-Lee gave at the festival last year, which was called No Planet B. And just a quick reminder, all of our recorded talks are currently available for free 
on our website. And there's over a thousand five hundred of them. So how can people keep in touch with us, Catherine, and let us know what they're thinking about the podcast and what they're looking forward to at the festival? You know that I still haven't learned what our social media handles are, so I don't know why you're asking me. Oh, go on, give it a go. (laughs) Give it a go. Episode seven. Okay. Seven is your lucky number. (laughs) So on Facebook, we're called Greenbelt Festival. On Twitter, we're at Greenbelt Festival. On Twitter, we're just at Greenbelt we should standardise it. It's our fault. It's not your fault. We should really standardise it. It's very confusing. On Twitter, we're at Greenbelt. On Instagram, we're at Greenbelt Festival. And you can get in touch with us on our email account, which is stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. And do you know what? When we um, set that email address up, Paul Truman, who helps us script some of these podcasts when he's not on holiday like he is at the moment. Anyway... I'll get over it. <laughs> he said that STBI would be really easy to say and remember, but every time I say it, I get the letters in the wrong order. It's not. I get the letters in the wrong order all the time. I, I find those things quite hard. So next week is our last episode of this summer season. Time flies. I've had a great time, Paul. I don't think I've ever spent so much time just chatting one-on-one with really interesting people. You mean me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I've really, I've really enjoyed it. I found the whole idea of, you know, how are we going to get a podcast going? How are we going to get a podcast going? But, you know, obviously it takes time, takes prep. You've got to line it all up. But to be able to just talk to these people, it's been incredible. Maybe we could ask people to send in ideas of who we should speak to for the next eight episodes. Yeah, definitely, definitely more artists. We talked in, I think it was the last uh, podcast episode, we said we'd be interviewing a musician for our last episode. But unfortunately, that was all lined up, but it's not going to work out. So we definitely need to do more artists in season two. And I know you've got lots of good ideas, but yeah, send in your ideas. Who do you think that Catherine and I should chat with does anybody know patty smith personally (laughs) exactly i wondered how long it would be until you mentioned patty smith so yeah do let us know the stand-in for us and you're going to think that it was just like plan b but it's turned into the best plan we ever had for next week's episode is clive stafford smith the human rights lawyer and i have to say Catherine, don't know about you one of the most mind-blowing conversations i've ever had in my life Incredible. I know that parents aren't supposed to have a favourite child, (laughs) but he would be mine. (laughs) Everything about that is wrong, Catherine, but um, I just hope that lots of you can tune in and and listen to that conversation. I don't know how we're going to edit it because... I mean, we could just play the whole thing back. It was phenomenal. Don't edit it. Yeah, just play it back. Just We don't have to say anything next week. I haven't really got anything else to say anyway. I've used all my good stuff up. (laughs) Uh, All my good material's gone, yeah. Yeah, I need a whole team of writers. Yeah, I mean, if you're out there and you can offer material to Catherine and I or be part of some sort of impromptu, informal writing crew that writes our material, get in touch. (laughs) Because we have used it all up and more. (laughs) But yeah, please tune in next week for Clive Stafford-Smith. But it's been great to talk to Amelia Womack today and we'd like to thank her for her time. Thank you.
thank you to Daisy Ware Jarrett for producing us and making this all happen. And thanks to Paul Truman on our staff team as well. We'd also like to say a big thank you to Lee Baines of Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires for letting us use his amazing track, I Can Change, for the theme tune on our podcasts. And also to Kat and Josh on our Recorded Talks volunteer team for making us sound good by editing us so well. Thank you.